Welcome to Into Theology. My name is Wyatt Graham, and I'm joined with Ian Clary, and we're here to talk about Calvin's Institutes, Book Two, and Chapters One and Two. Next yeah, week we're is Chapter Three. Now, man. Book Two, yeah, yeah, we move through fast. Except for Book Four is huge, but um, we are moving through pretty fast. And if you've kept up, great. If you haven't, just start where you are. There's no need to go back and reread everything. You can always go back to the podcast if you need to, but jump in the reading plan wherever you find yourself. Um, as we get going, some of the topics are going to be original sin. I mean, free will. <laughs> Those are kind of the main topics, I guess. But as we get going, Ian's going to read us a passage from Calvin's Institutes, and we can kind of start there. So, Ian, go ahead. Yeah, we're making a big switch um, now uh, into this whole kind of like the rest of the, the major section of the Institutes, which is knowledge of God as Redeemer. So for the last however many um, episodes that we've done, what are we on, number eight now, I think, or nine? Something like um, that. Yeah, something like that. Um, we've been really dealing with knowledge of God as creator. Um, Calvin starts the Institutes off with having this kind of like back and forth between knowing the twofold knowledge of God. And uh, and so now it's great. Now, now, now this part that we're in here is, is pretty bleak in many respects, right? We're, we're dealing with original sin. And a lot of what he says in here is like some tough slogging, uh, especially if you have uh, problems with self-esteem. Um, but I'm going to read from a book. Uh, two, chapter one, section two, which is if you're in the battles edition with the uh, battles, it's on the uh, bottom of page 242. I'm just going to read some of this here and then that'll kind of be our jumping off point uh, to talk more about these things. So Calvin here is going to talk about how a kind of pride is really a root of sin and, uh, and then the effect that that has. So he says here then is what God's truth requires us to seek in examining ourselves. It requires the kind of knowledge that will strip us of all confidence in our own ability, deprive of us, uh, us of all occasion for boasting, and lead us to submission. We ought to keep this rule if we wish to reach the true goal of both wisdom and action. I'm quite aware how much more pleasing is that principle which invites us to weigh our good traits rather than to look upon our miserable want and dishonor, which ought to overwhelm us with shame. There is indeed nothing that man's nature seeks more eagerly and to be flattered. Accordingly, when his nature becomes aware that its gifts are highly esteemed, it tends to be unduly credulous about them. It is thus no wonder that the majority of men have erred so perniciously in this respect. For since blind self-love is innate in all mortals, they are more freely persuaded that nothing inheres in themselves that deserves to be considered hateful. Thus, even with no outside support, the utterly vain opinion generally obtains credence that man is abundantly sufficient of himself to lead a good and blessed life. But if any take a more modest attitude and concede something to God, so as to not to appear to claim everything for themselves, they so divide the credit that the chief basis for boasting and confidence remains in themselves. So, I mean, you read that and it's like, ah, you know, I kind of resonate with what he's saying there. I, I know how that goes, right? Um, it, you know, how awful it is, even when you have like the, the humble brag, you know, is like kind of like the, the, the kind of almost a key manifestation of this is even when we're trying to be humble, we're proud. And uh, mm. there's something I think to what Calvin is saying that, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to examine ourselves. Um, that's part of, you know, knowing God, knowing ourselves, that kind of dialectic. And, uh, and so when we try to know ourselves, it's remarkably hard because we like to be flattered. And when others tell mm. us how great we are and we have, we already have these notions in our mind that we're these great people um that actually clouds our ability to really what he says here he says we, we need to keep this rule of, of real self-examination if we re want to reach the true goal of wisdom and action 
So if that's what we're pursuing, or piety as he would describe it, um, then, um, then we actually have to be pretty brutally honest with ourselves as who we are before God. Uh, and so that kind of leads us into this, this sort of whole problem of, of, of the nature of human sin and where it comes from and what its effects are. Yeah, I think it's helpful too to, to bring in that Calvin is really strong in distinguishing our original state from our fallen state. And in our fallen state, we are in a state of self-love and self-deception and so on. Self-deception, I don't think he says that, but that idea. Because, you know, uh, just in section one, just before you read, he talks about us pursuing blessed immortality. But that primal worthiness cannot come to mind without the sorry spectacle of our fellness and dishonor presenting itself by way of contrast. Since in the person of the first man, Adam, we have fallen from our original condition. And so for him, this is like a really important distinction that there's the original state and then our subsequent state, which we're in now. And he's going to kind of talk a lot about that, which is, which is the topic of original sin or concupiscence. Um, Our, sort of proclivity to have this power of sin in our flesh and how we get it. Um, There's actually a lot that we could say, but maybe like the first thing I could maybe ask you is how would you kind of just describe how, according to Calvin, how Adam plays a role in original sin? What what is Elvin for, uh, Elvin, (laughs) Adam for us? Elvin and the chipmunks. And the chipmunks, yeah. Where's Theodore? (laughs) Where's Theodore? Yeah, so he's he's gonna like go through in some detail about what Adam um, what Adam affected, and uh, he's gonna he's gonna make some interesting arguments. Um, he's gonna say in uh, right at the very kind of end um, in number eight of uh, like so section eight of of uh, of book one that or sorry of chapter, chapter one, one that um, that. You know, he's he's given a definition of original sin, and he's going to say it's not merely a lack of original righteousness, right? So it is that um, yeah. we have this kind of upright standing. Adam and Eve have this upright standing in the garden, and they lose that. But rather, uh, going beyond merely a loss of original righteousness is that there's actually something that happens um, to all of us in Adam, such that then you know it's not like oh we're being punished and we're guilty. Or something that has nothing to do with us, but rather it's got everything to do with us because of our status in Adam. And so mm-hmm. he says in uh, in the beginning of, of section six there, chapter one, that Adam was not just an ancestor, but a root. <clears throat> and right. so it's because of that, that then the whole human race gets tainted. And so he picks up on the idea of like the tainting of sin or what you know theologians describe as the macula, or the stain of sin. And so, you know, this, this then is ours. And so that everything that we do when we're like, he's not going to, he's not going to deny the freedom of the will, even in our fallen state. Um, You know, we still freely choose to do things, but because of the stain of sin now, that's going to affect even the powers that we have, like our intellects and our will. Yeah. And that's what you're describing is total depravity. And I think it's a bit of a misconception when you, we hear total depravity. Sometimes we think it means no one ever in any case, in any situation, can ever do anything of value. But total depravity means that every faculty in our person or humanity has been damaged. Yeah. And that's why, like, you can have good governance sometimes or good science. It's not the case that you're just totally blasted, but that every faculty is affected partly anyways. Yeah, yeah I think that's right. And one in, So there's a couple interesting things when it comes to original sin here. Uh, you're right. Root and branches is their contagion. He uses a lot of like sickness language. 
one thing I find really interesting at the, uh, it's on page 250 on my edition, but that's also section seven. Uh, near the end of the first paragraph, he makes this point and it strikes me that he has a, um, he's really um, talking about prior views of original sin and striking a third view here. He says this, for the contagion does not take its origin from the substance of the flesh or soul. But because it had been so ordained by God that the first man should at one and the same time have and lose both for himself and for his descendants, the gifts that God had bestowed upon him. Yeah. Me meaning he has a view. It's really interesting. He doesn't explain how it works, but it's almost, con it's almost reliant upon God's will. The, w the will of God and the way that God has ordered reality is that basically Adam is our representative. Now, he doesn't use a federal head language, later theologians will. But it's, it's a bit closer to God willed it yeah. <laughs> to work that way. And you don't have to ask a question after that, um, which I find interesting. It's not transferred through a seed of, of a person or the soul or in creation or something like that. But really, it's because God willed it. Um, I just find that really interesting. That's his view. It's very, um, I don't know, underexplained in a sense. <laughs> Yeah, he talks about heredity, doesn't he? And uh, it's in the beginning of eight, where he kind of goes and gives his his definition there, um, right before that Galatians five nineteen quote, hmm. uh, where he says, uh, you know, original sin there seems to be a hereditary depravity, mm -hmm. corruption of our nature. And then he's going to go on as soon as we get into the next chapter. In chapter two, he starts off with that kind of famous quote by Augustine. Uh, where he says, you know, that, uh, you know, he's, he affirms the, this, this statement of Augustine that man's natural gifts are corrupted by sin and his nat supernatural gifts are withdrawn. Hmm. So there's something, there's something natural about us that we have in our original state that gets corrupted. And then there are these supernatural gifts that are referred uh, to of like, kind of like righteousness, faith and things that we have um, that allow us to kind of have a relationship with God that have then actually been removed. Hmm. And, um, and so these all are kind of part and parcel of like the, the effects then of, of what he defines in the singular as sin, as opposed to sins, right? That's important. You should talk about that for a second. I think, I think that is one of the, the most insightful things of this chapter is the, the definition of what is proper sin versus what we call sins or the fruit of sin. Yeah. It's, it's like that kind of, you often hear people say that it's like, well, you don't, you don't commit sins. You're not a sinner because you commit sins you commit sins because you're a sinner, right? Mm. And so, yeah, he says that right after that quote that I just read about the heredity, he says that this reaches every part of the soul, makes us abhorrent to God's wrath, produces in us what scriptures call the work of the flesh. And he says, this corruption is constantly called sin by Paul, Galatians 5, 19, while the things which spread, spring from it, such as adultery, fornication, theft, hatred, murder, revelings, he calls sins. And sins are the fruit of sin. And then he goes on and kind of wants to make that distinction kind of more clearly. Yeah. And, the, then, and then he gets into the whole discussion of babies, which is a bit intense. Yeah. We can get there to that in a second. Um, so I think that's helpful. So you have the category of sin, which is this general category, which is really original sin. Sin is original sin. That what you're born into that is worthy of condemnation and which is a proclivity towards what we call sins in the plural, like the manifestations of less greed and so on. Yeah. I think that's really helpful. I think it's clarifying. I think sometimes we we just kind of accidentally think of sin more as a mathematical quantity rather than a power or a corrupting influence or something that is part of our, our nature after the fall of sin. Yeah. I think Calvin's right on this, and I think it's helpful. 
And I think it, it helps us to kind of shy away a little bit from, oh, I did 27 sins today versus I am by nature a sinner because of sin. And therefore the fruit of my sin are these manifestations. And therefore, I mean, that's why in sanctification, you often hear you got to get rid of the, you know, change the fruit or change the root for better fruit. Right. That's why sanctification regeneration works because you no longer have uh, that kind of root of, of sin and therefore or in the same way anyways, and the fruit is different. So I find that just kind of helpful practically to think through. Um, I think it's also just as an aside. Um, and I don't know what, you know, I can't remember what Calvin gets into when it comes to, we'll, we'll discover this uh, in a little while when we get into him on baptism. But, um, but the idea of like washing in baptism is important, right? As an image of, of what's happening to us, because if we have this hereditary taint uh, or, or stain of sin, that needs to be washed, right? And, um, you know, Paul talks about the kind of being washed with the word in Ephesians 5 and those kinds of things. And so, like, there, there really does need to be a kind of cleaning up of the soul that happens. That's, that's what regeneration does, and that's what sanctification does. Yeah, and even Titus in chapter 3 kind of ties the language of baptism and washing together in a pretty clear way, and regeneration too. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's this idea that we have this kind of power or corrupting influence of sin that's in us, inheres in us. And that baptism is a sign and symbol of that kind of uh, regeneration that happens. So I think that's useful. I think it, it's, a, it's better, if you understand this way, it's a, it, hel- it helps to understand that metaphor um, of washing. Now, my favorite actually metaphor that I think for me is most clarifying is in the same section. When Calvin talks about um, us having become entangled in the curse, I find that interesting. It's, it's almost like when you're, when you're coming out of the womb, like when you're born, there's an entanglement of like uh, of, of bushes or something like that. And you're just kind of born into it. Yeah. And that's an, that's a really helpful way for me to think through what he's getting at, because he says, this is not liability for another's transgression. In other words, we're not punished because somebody else sinned. Yeah. For since it is said that we became subject to God's judgment through Adam's sin, we are to understand it not as if we guiltless and undeserving bore the guilt of his offense, but in the sense that since we have through his transgression have become entangled in the curse, he is said to have made us guilty. So because of Adam, we are entangled, we're caught up, we're irreversibly born into the curse. And that is the corruption of our nature in part. Uh, and yet, then he goes on to say, and we're going to get to the, the infant section, we can talk about that. Yet not only has punishment fallen upon us from Adam, but a contagion imparted by him resides in us, which justly deserves punishment. That's the reason Augustine, though he often calls sin another's to show more clearly that it is distributed among us through propagation, nevertheless declares at the same time that it is peculiar to each. And the apostle himself most eloquently testifies that death has spread to all because all have sinned, Romans 5.12. That is, they have been enveloped, wait, how do you say that word? Enveloped. Uh, they've been enveloped in original, original sin. Original sin and defiled. I couldn't, for some reason, I forgot to talk. That is, they've been <laughs> enveloped in original sin and defiled by its stains. Here it is. For that reason, yeah. even infants themselves, while they carry their condemnation along with them from the mother's womb, are guilty not of another's fault, but of their own. What do you think of that sentence, Ian? Yeah, that's intense. I think what he's, he's not, I don't think, you know, he's trying we just be careful and not trying to like jump on what it sounds like initially. Um, I don't think he's saying that, um, 
that an infant when it dies is going to go to hell. Uh, I don't think that's what he's trying to get at. I think what he's saying is that there's almost like a primary kind of like status that we all have as humans. That's, that's, that's as you're describing, this entanglement, the contagion, the stain or tainted sin. And, uh, and that's the primary problem. And it's there for the infant as, it is, as much as it is for us. But the infant's not going to manifest those sins in the plural yet, right? And so that's why there's this huge problem. Um, so they're rendered guilty. He doesn't go on to say at this point, at least as far as I recall, um, anything about like the punishment of the infant. I don't he's think just, so. I think he's just trying to make them as a kind of more object lesson to say, listen, even they have the stain of sin, even though they've not committed sins yet. Um, and so, yeah, he says, even though the fruits of their iniquity have not yet come forth, they have the seed enclosed within them. And indeed their whole nature is a seed of sin. Hence it can only be hateful and abhorrent to God. From this, it follows that it is rightly considered sin in God's sight. Without guilt, there would be no accusation. Um, so he's just trying to kind of get at this idea of Adam as this root. And, uh, and then we have this within us, this hereditary corruption that's come down to us that's ours. He's trying to make the point, this is ours. Not we're being judged merely because of somebody's external sin to us, right? Which is Pelagianism. Um, it's, it's rather that, you know, we, we actually are really somehow there. Now, I don't know if he goes into Augustine's view of, you know, us being there in a, in a realist way, the, um, you know, seminally um, kind of thing, and, and that it's that original sin is transmitted through the sex act. But um, nevertheless, he's trying to make that basic point that this, mm. this is something that we're actually responsible for. Yeah, and as we know, all babies go to limbo anyway, so we're, they're fine. That's right. Yeah. That, that's a joke. Um, yeah, I think you're exactly right. What would you say? <laughs> That's why I'm laughing. Oh, you said okay, you yeah. that for our audience. <laughs> yeah, it's not <laughs> just for you. Uh, kind of, yeah. Um, so uh, I think that's interesting. I think you're exactly right. I mean, I remember reading a letter, I told you this, um, but from Calvin, I believe to someone in France who had lost a child and Calvin is a pastor. If I remember right, Calvin affirms that this baby is in, he uh, in heaven and it's, it's very pastoral. It's very kind. It's very tender. The reason he brings up infants here is in one sense to make a theological argument. I think, I mean, maybe it sounds harsh, but he's, he's just kind of abstracting. He's not really thinking of any individual baby or something like that. He's trying to yeah. say what well, you said. We're judged because of our sin. It's not, it's us. We're guilty. Yeah. It's no one else's fault. Even if we're entangled into this world of sin through Adam, it's not Adam's like fault that you do wrong. It's, it's your fault. Yeah. And so you're, you're, we're worthy of um, judgment. And as you noted, I can't remember on the recording or not, uh, this whole section we're in, this is setting up the problem. It, it is yeah. kind of extra harsh in a sense because it's, it's kind of law before gospel in, in a way. It is the problem before solution more accurately. So I think that is part of it. Um, it is, he does use strong language even after this. He says, indeed, their whole nature is a seed of sin. Yeah. Hence, it can be only hateful and abhorrent to God. So I think we have to realize what Calvin is doing here because I've read his pastoral stuff is abstracted theological truth telling, but I don't think he would kind of preach like this or counsel like this um, to make a point. Um, it's interesting that he uses the language of nature, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the, so the nature of this infant is a seed of sin. And so, you know, it's probably helpful to kind of think about the distinction here. He, I don't think he means by this that, um, it's natural for humans to be sinful because God had originally created that 
things that way. He doesn't, he's not using nature there. Um, I think now he's, he's looking at, this is affecting our natures as a result of, of this fall and the stain of sin that comes down to us. Um, therefore it, it absolves, he's going to want to obviously absolve mm. God of, of, of being the author of sin. Um, that th- this is still ours. Um, he makes that point when he's talking about the Manichees later. And uh, he actually cites Ephesians 2, 3. Um, so uh, children of wrath by nature. And what he's getting at there is not original nature. Yeah. He says, Paul, it talks in this way and we do too. You're sinful by nature. N- not because your human nature is somehow bad. In fact, it's good. Great. It's, it's very good. But that due to the fall of sin and due to this contagion, the sickness that's in us, we're entangled into something and kind of in an improper way, I suppose yeah. we say that we're sinful by nature because uh, he actually makes the distinction. I-, I love how Calvin is like a little bit anti-scholastic. This whole section is scholastic. And then he makes a distinction actually that, um, what was it again? Oh, oh, that, um, that sin is an accidental property. It's not yeah. essential to our nature, yeah. which is a scholastic distinction, but it's a helpful one because accidental sure. doesn't mean whoopsie doopsie. Yeah. It means that it's something that is not necessary for human nature, but is added to it kind of deal. And by yeah. essence, by essence means what is necessary for human nature to be human nature. Uh, it's actually good and great and perfect. It's this contagion has come in and then corrupted human nature to the point that every faculty of the soul and body has been damaged. And he'll, uh, I think just quickly, I want to sum up so we can move to the last section because of time. But he makes this distinction between um, heavenly and kind of earthly um, practices and that the heavenly things that we, we do, we can't do good anymore. Those are totally gone. But there are certain earthly goods that we can do, and, and that's why we can trust science. Um, that's why we can trust government. There is an impulse towards these things, and there's, these are kind of remnants or vestiges of that original image that we have of goodness. And therefore, there is some good in this world in that relative sense. Um, yeah, he wants you want us to comment to, on that? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, he wants us to, um, he, he, want, he encourages us here, where is it, uh, to look at our original kind of dignity is the way uh, Mm. he described it, I think, where, you know, we need to look back to, yeah, he calls it our, at least in the other edition I have here, the, uh, the beverage one. Uh, This is in, uh, in chapter one, section three, he says that um, uh, it is not God's will that we should forget the primeval dignity he gave to Adam and Eve. It may well spur us on to follow goodness and justice. And uh, he says, we cannot think of our origins or the end for which we were created without having the urge to think about the eternal life and seek the kingdom of God. So we do have to look back and kind of remember that original state uh, as something that, as you're saying, right, is, is you know, the, the sinful state that we're in now is not essential to who we are. And, uh, and because it is accidental, then therefore can be changed back to yeah. that original yeah. standing, which is what regeneration and you know, salvation is going to do for us. Um, yeah, yeah, I think Paul I, talks a bit about that. I think I think that distinction between accidents and essences is so important. I was just teaching it in philosophy this past week. My students, you know, the best way to describe it is, you know, what what are what is it that what's what's the essence of what makes a ball? So they're all like, well, it has to be round. I was like, right. Uh, I said, but if you have a red ball and you change its color to blue, does it stop being a ball? And I said, no. I said, well, that's because that's the accident, right? That's its accidental property. It's color. You can change that and it still maintains its essence. And so humans have certain things. I would argue image of God um, is what makes us essentially human. And, uh, and 
you know, our, our righteousness or our sinfulness are accidental properties. It's not to say that, oh, that's just external to us as though it doesn't really touch on who we are. It uh, doesn't have an effect or anything like that. But nevertheless, um, you know, the, the, it shows that we're still redeemable. If they can be a loss, they're accidental, Calvin argues, but if they can be gained, you know, and so on. So, I, no, I think that's incredibly helpful. It, it, everybody is a human being, human nature. Yeah. They have dignity and worth due to that. That's something we need to affirm, but there are accidental properties that we can gain by the Holy Spirit, righteousness, faith, and so on. And, and those that are lost by the fall that we can offer people through the gospel. Uh, page yeah. 272 to, um, and 273, section 13. Really important, I just want to note, Calvin talks about the implanted seed in all men of sort of this general knowledge of governance and earthly things and so on. This idea of the implanted kind of um, law in our hearts is massive and everywhere in the Reformed tradition. It's why the world can work. Uh, I don't think we need to really talk too much about it, but I think it's just note, it's good to note that it's there. Calvin is not someone who denies that uh, a doctor can be a good doctor because original sin or a scientist can't study the stars. In fact, he says there's many good things in the philosophers. Uh, you should study them. There's great thoughts, observations. All of this is possible. Uh, what he's really getting at is the heavenly things we can't do, and therefore you can't really be good and righteous, just, holy, and so on, apart from the Holy Spirit. That's maybe the most practical, simple way to say it. Yeah, um, I love those two. Those two sections, 14 and 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 15 uh, of chapter two. There, great. You know, like he's saying, like. Uh, this evidence clearly testifies to a universal apprehension of reason and understanding by nature implanted in man. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's what makes, you know, the arts, uh, liberal arts, manual arts, as he calls them possible. And right. uh, e even the heading here of um, science is God's gift, you know, um, in, in this edition, it's like, yeah, it is, you know, and, and therefore because of this, all humans still have this ability uh, mm. to be able to, as you said, make the world work, you know? Well, yeah, he says they have penetrating, uh, sharp and penetrating in their investigation of inferior things, which are the things of the world. And I think it's just so useful. And, and just one quick note. I mean, this is why when we're explaining doctrine, it is totally fine to use medical terminology, physics terminology, metaphysical terminology. And we don't, it doesn't have to be from uh, directly from a Christian or something like that because people can make true observations. If I want to say gravity is really cool, it shows God's glory, I can talk about Einstein's theory of relativity. You know, it's totally fine yeah. because that's a gift of God. And I can talk about metaphysics because I need to understand how things change. That's totally fine. Uh, there, are, there are two different categories of things in the world and Kelvin is not eliminating one or the other. I think we just have to have the Holy Spirit to help guide us to think through those things. I want to talk about one more topic. We're getting really close to our a normal time limit. So I kind of want to just yeah. push through if that's okay. Sure. And that's free will. I'll just kind of briefly note Calvin's, uh, I think he actually advances in the next two chapters as well. The same definition. It's really important to understand what Calvin means by free will. When Calvin says free will, uh, he doesn't mean what we normally think of. Uh, when we think of free will, we think of, well, I make my own choice. Uh, Calvin's fine with that. What he's saying is, look, Free will is specifically when your reason can deliberate between choices and it chooses in accordance with the good, with God at, at, as its total end. Uh, he doesn't mean that people don't make choices uh, free of compulsion. Or Sorry, we do make choices free of compulsion. Yeah. We make all sorts of choices based on desires. Calvin is completely okay with that. 
his uh, definition of free will is very specific, and therefore he denies that ability in us still exists. But that very specific definition is, again, our mind, our reason is able to deliberate between good and evil and choose according to the best, the good, namely with God as, as its final end. He'll develop that, but I think it's kind of worth saying because, well, when I became a cage stage Calvinist, you know, everyone loves to deny free will, but I think I had no idea what I was talking about. Like none. Yeah. Um, and Calvin is very clear on what it is. And I think that's just helpful to know. So do you have any kind of comment or reflection on that? Yeah. I mean, for him to deny freedom of the will would actually kind of undercut everything he's going to be saying about, you know, the fact that we actually are responsible for what we do. Right. Right. And, uh, and so you absolutely need it, uh, a free, a free will. Um, but it, it's, it is, it's how he's going to organize those faculties or powers such that the, the intellect is what governs the will, which we saw in a previous podcast, you know, he gets attacked, um, has to defend himself, uh, against a, a Roman Catholic, uh, theologian who this awesome name Pigius uh, on this very matter Pigius tries to like kind of bat bat uh, Calvin upside the head with Augustine um, because Augustine of course has a uh, has a freedom of the will and in that interchange which is not in the institutes here but uh, in that interchange with Pigius Calvin is at, at great pains to make the point that no we do absolutely have we have free will um, it's just that our our wills are governed by human reason and uh, because of this, then, um, if, if our minds aren't going to be thinking rightly, our, our wills and our actions are not going to go rightly either. And in a sense, that's almost kind of like, you know, obvious. Yeah. I mean, this is section 26 that I was kind of referring to. And that the power of free choice is not to be sought in such an appetite, an urge to do something, which arises from inclination of nature rather than deliberation of mind. Even the schoolmen admit that free will is active only when the reason considers alternative possibilities. And he goes on, but what he's getting at, I believe in the next two chapters of Memory Serves, he really gets at it, is just what he said. It's, he does deny free will in a very, very technical sense only. Yeah. Namely, that our reason cannot perfectly deliberate and line up with things. But there is a natural impulsion towards say the good or for a well-ordered society or for candy or whatever it is. And you're choosing that apart from external compulsion. And um, he maybe with Piggyus <laughs> explains that further and maybe affirms free will finally. But I think most of us, when we, when we hear what Calvin actually means, get that what we mean by free will, Calvin affirms. Yeah. Right? yeah uh, his says, definition he- is odd. <laughs> Yeah, he says in, uh, what section is this? Uh, chapter 212, uh, he says um, that, uh, where is it? I just lost it. Oh, uh, the, because the will is inseparable from man's nature, it did not perish, because our, our natures didn't perish, uh, but became so bound by depraved lusts as to be incapable of worthy desires. Mm. And so you can see how, like, uh, and he says this is in line then, uh, with the division of soul and intellect and will, we must now study the power of the intellect and he goes on to do that. And so we, the, the, the will is, is bound by depraved lusts, um, which are grounded in our desires, uh, which are governed by our fallen natures and our reason. Uh, and so, yeah, the will is not free insofar as it's bound by the intellect, which is bound by our nature, which is bound by sin. But once we're freed from sin, the will is still bound, but free, right? Like it's, it's still bound by these 
desires, which are governed by our intellects, which is governed by our natures. But now that if our natures are redeemed, hmm. the will, either way, the, the, the functioning is still the same. It's just that now there's this removal of the stain of sin, which allows all of these other faculties to work properly. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's it. So if you want to if you want to become an engineer or if you want to become a doctor, and those are your two choices, uh, you can you actually make that choice. It's yours. Yeah. Um, it's not, you know, your blind fate controls everything you do. But if you want to choose to live by the Holy Spirit, you need to trust God and receive that gift. Yeah, yeah. He's going to talk about spiritual discernment, right, in section eighteen there, um, which is exactly what we need. Well, I think this is a probably, I'm, there were, these were huge topics and I think we did a valiant attempt to actually cover them, but we really just dipped our toes in it. Original sin is, in my opinion, original sin is maybe one of the toughest theological topics because there's no, there's not like a verse, like the Bible says that Christ rose from the dead. Original sin is a bit tougher. It's more, you got Romans five, you have to think through it, the implications, how sin works, how your faculties work. Um, and so it's, it is pretty complex. And I think Kelvin is a, a a valiant job of attempting to make it scrutable, <laughs> but it is still a bit inscrutable in terms of how all these things work out practically. I mean, you can see then why, you know, we were talking about this off camera, but um, why metaphysics is important then, yeah. you know, to, under, to have philosophy is really important for understanding theology because if we're trying to understand like, how do we actually inherit original sin? Um, that's, that's really hard to conceive of without metaphysics. Without the language of accident in essence, it really makes it tough. Just, too, yeah. you, don't, you don't have to use those two words, but just that idea, like the idea that, okay, <laughs> what am I? What is, what is sin doing to me um, is helpful. And scripture itself commands us to look at nature, Proverbs. Um, in fact, the wisdom literature as a whole. And in fact, even the Psalms that tell us to see the glory of God in creation. So I think we're actually commanded and intended to enjoy God's creation, to learn how to understand the meaning of his revelation more deeply and, and thoroughly. So we'll continue to pursue that, I guess, in our own ways. And I look forward to next week as we look at uh, chapters three and four in book two. And I'll show you one last, one last oh, yeah. thing here. Go ahead. My daughter just asked me if she's allowed to go over to her friend's house for lunch. <laughs> Ooh. Hopefully that's not an example of original sin, but <laughs> <laughs> depends on what they're eating. Depends they're on what eating they're... all kinds of like processed foods and stuff. Yeah. Hot dogs are original sin. I agree. <laughs> just kidding. All right. Thanks, Ian. We'll see you next time. Sounds good.